Let's now turn to the Gospel of Mark 15, beginning at verse 16. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison, and they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, and we that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of, full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone, let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. The congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ in Mark's Gospel, and it is quite characteristic of the other accounts of the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have uh, a rather matter-of-fact statement of, uh, of what took place, and uh, really with little description of the, of the horrific details of the crucifixion. Not that those details that are revealed to us in the Gospels and even in Psalm 22 are, are not important. But, uh, uh, the scripture doesn't draw our attention to the kinds of things that the typical, uh, dramatic reimagining, uh, would ordinarily include in, uh, dramatic presentations 
of the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. And those are popular at this time of the year, old movies that supposedly uh, depict on film the passion of Christ become popular for a while, and uh, many people are drawn to such things. And I think uh, we might well be concerned that some of these depictions, or at least the whole character of such depictions, tend to, to fool people, many people into thinking that they stir pious emotions and feelings just because they are deeply, profoundly affected by a graphic depiction of blood and gore and suffering of an innocent man. And it's uh, the kind of piety that is more characteristic of Pentecostal and Roman Catholic obsession with the details of Jesus' suffering than what we are actually given in Scripture. And furthermore, it always, it invariably involves uh, fabrication. It involves decisions that producers make to fill in details and to decide how to depict the scene in every way that simply involves human imagination because such details are not recorded uh, for us in Scripture. And that means that people have to kind of come up with their own ideas. And that means that they have to lie. They have to make things up. And that's really the, the characteristic of uh, of images. They always involve a falsification. That's why the back book of Habakkuk calls them lying images. They misrepresent. They mislead. That's the very nature of such things, whether by, by pictures of God or statutes or actors that would presume to depict the Lord of glory in an imaginative way. And we ought not to think that such things are harmless. I think that's a great loss if people reading the account of Scripture have an image of certain actors that profoundly impress them. And they may very well confuse the actual account of Scripture and what is imagined by such dramatic presentation. And that includes, by the way, this popular series that I hear about the Chosen that supposedly depicts the life of Jesus. I haven't watched it. I wouldn't watch it. But I've seen enough advertisements to realize that they're doing the very same thing. I hear supposed quotations or Jesus, the actor representing Jesus, saying things that Jesus never said. There's absolutely no record, no account whatsoever of Jesus speaking such words as are put in the mouth of an actor. They ought to be afraid that their uh, own names would be removed from the book of life for adding to the word of God, that the plagues that God threatens against those who add to his word should fall upon them. It is very presumptuous to put mouths in the words of an actor purportedly spoken by Jesus when he never said such words. And even the ones that I've heard spoken, they do not resonate with the truth of what Jesus did say. So we ought not to be drawn, we ought not to be impressed with such things. The, the actual gospel accounts, they really focus upon how the, the Lord Jesus in his death Fulfilled scripture. There are numerous allusions to various passages of scripture in Mark's account here. There are specific quotations from, from Psalm 22 and, and from Isaiah 53. Our focus this morning is on those just, those three verses, verses 37 through 39, in which we have the fact of Jesus' death and words and events that immediately occurred in connection with his death. 
Now, it's worth uh, noting that the first readers of the Gospel of Mark uh, were not given the full story. And, of course, that's especially the case if all they had at that time in which they uh, heard Mark's Gospel read was the Gospel of Mark. Mark and Matthew are viewed by scholars as among the earliest of the Gospel accounts that were published, with the Gospel of John being the last. And so... uh Mark doesn't include all the details that we gather from the other synoptic Gospels and from the Gospel of John. But what is recorded is enough to confront us as it confronted them with the most marvelous death that ever took place. You know, we all have a fascination uh, with the accounts of people's death, especially if they're great people, for good or evil, notorious people as well as good people. We're interested in how they died. We're interested in what they may have said uh, just before they died. I suppose the greater the person, the greater interest or fascination in such things. I recently read the account of Jonathan Edwards' death, this uh, great American theologian uh, who was actually elected to uh, serve as the president of uh, Princeton's seminary uh, uh, just shortly before he died. Uh, he died because of reaction to a smallpox inoculation. But there's the account of, of his deathbed with his daughter and others gathered around. And uh, they thought that he was altogether unconscious. And uh, they began to express their grief over what his loss would mean uh, to Princeton Seminary, what his loss would mean uh, to the church at large. And suddenly he spoke up. And he spoke these, and they were his last words, trust in God and you need not fear. And uh, what a Christ-like thing to say. In his dying, he is concerned to speak words of love and care for others. And uh, even as he speaks to them, he's giving testimony with his dying breaths of his own trust in God and his lack of fear as he passed from this world into the next. And that, that kind of comfort, that kind of trust and lack of, of, of fear is something that we may possess precisely because of that death that we consider this morning. We heard in our call to worship the summons to sing unto the Lord and to declare his great salvation and his wonders. And we're considering the, the wonder of wonders this morning when we look at the dying of our Lord Jesus Christ. The wonder of Jesus shines out in his death. And uh, we're going to look at three ways in which that uh, takes place. Uh, it, it shines out in the way he died. And in that connection, it shines out in the one who died. And then thirdly, in what happened when he died, as recorded in our text here. We begin by considering the way he died, specifically in his dying. Verse 37 says, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Clearly a remarkable statement. Clearly what is recorded here of Jesus crying out with a loud voice and then breathing his last had a profound effect upon uh, this centurion who was supervising the execution of our Lord Jesus. The very fact that Jesus cried with a loud voice is remarkable. 
Apparently, death by crucifixion involved a kind of slow uh, suffocation as the blood and the breath uh, just slowly ebbed out. In fact, it uh, it takes some investigation to uh, confirm that one is actually dead. The practice was to ensure that uh, the victims were dead by breaking their legs so that certainly they would quit breathing. But often they did that uh, just to verify that one was really dead because life could ebb out so gradually and slowly as to be almost imperceptible. But the Lord Jesus, just before he dies, he cries with a loud voice. And this experienced uh, military man, this centurion in charge of a hundred men, was familiar, no doubt, with death and with how people die. And perhaps he had supervised crucifixions on other occasions. And for a victim of such a death to cry out and then, and then to expire, to, to die immediately after that, that was striking, remarkable, amazing to him. Verse 39 focuses attention on that way he died. When he saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, we have that exclamation we'll consider shortly. Now, Jesus did not cry out. We have to be clear on this, too. Jesus did not cry out in anguish. It wasn't It wasn't a scream of pain that the centurion, the others, heard. He spoke words. He spoke loud words. And here we really have to draw from the other accounts uh, for a full picture. Perhaps you've heard uh, reference to the seven sayings of Christ upon the cross. Because there were seven different statements that Jesus made during his crucifixion. And the, the the first three apparently took place rather early on in his crucifixion. The first being his prayer for forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then seeing his mother, and no doubt he saw her soon after he was crucified, he commits her into the care of John. Woman, behold your son, referring to John. To John, John, behold your mother. And we're told that from that day, John uh, took the mother of Jesus into his home to care for him, to care for her. And then there are the words spoken to the repentant thief. Today, this day, you shall be with me in paradise. And then there are three hours of darkness from the sixth hour to the ninth hour from 12 noon till 3 p.m., hours culminating in what we're told in verse 34. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, he cried out these words with a loud voice, but Luke makes clear that he cried out again with a loud voice, and so we ought not to confuse uh, that uh, first cry that we're told of here and what we read of in verse 37. And then there were three more sayings of our Lord in rather quick succession. The first being, I thirst. And on this occasion, contrary to his initial refusal of this uh, wine and this myrrh that would dull the pain, at this point he receives something to perhaps enable him to speak more with his parched mouth. I thirst, he said. 
And then, then those words with a loud voice. And then finally, the last words that Jesus spoke, words to his father, just before he breathed his last. Now, Luke makes the sequence of these things very clear when he says that, uh, and when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. When Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands. In other words, Father, into your hands was not the loud words that Jesus spoke, but they were spoke soon after. He spoke with loud words. And so then that leads to the question, what were those loud loud words? And the other accounts make clear that Jesus spoke those wonderful words, it is finished. It is finished. We're told that the centurion saw that he cried out like this, like this, with reference to that cry, and breathed his last. And it appears that to this centurion, as he observed this remarkable event, that Jesus' death, At the end, it kind of looked like an achievement that Jesus' death actually sounded like a victory at last. And it ended then with a quiet release of his soul into the hands of one he calls his father. You see, this soldier was in a position to observe it all. He stood opposite Jesus. He stood facing him. Now, did he hear all those words that Jesus spoke? that were recorded while on the cross? Did he hear them clearly? Did he understand them all? Did he speak Aramaic? Could well be. A lot of the Romans who worked and lived and served among the Jews would know Aramaic. We're not sure of that. The Aramaic is translated for the reader earlier on in our text. Well, certainly he saw enough in the way Jesus died to amaze him. He saw in the death of Jesus something marvelous and wonderful. And, of course, that's related to the one who died. The soldiers, we know from Luke's account, also mocked Jesus. Not only while he was in Pilate's hall, as we read about in Mark's gospel, but also as Jesus hung upon the cross, they mocked him. If you're the king of the Jews, come down from the cross, they also said. Now these were, these were non-Jewish, uh, militants, soldiers of the Roman Empire, uh, loyal to Caesar and the charge above Jesus' head for all to see written in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew was, this is the king of the Jews, the king of the Jews. No doubt that was a, a subject of great humor for these soldiers. Did the centurion at first join it with the others in their mockery? Was he like the thief? Mark tells us that uh, the thieves also, those that were crucified with him, also mocked him. But we also know that in time, one of those thieves began to think differently about the Lord Jesus. And he asked him to remember him when he entered into his kingdom. And Jesus assured him of his presence with him in paradise on that very day. Did something like that take place? In the mind, the heart of this centurion, 
We don't know that, but certainly the centurion came to see more than a title of Jesus' charge as the king of Jew, the Jews, supposedly. He began to actually behold the man, you might say. He saw Jesus' demeanor. He heard the tone of his words. He saw the look in his suffering eyes. And remember also that the centurion, as well as others, had to be profoundly affected by that earthquake that Matthew talks about, splitting rocks. And then those strange hours of darkness. These things no doubt profoundly affected him, but what our text zeroes in on is the way that Jesus died. To suggest that this brought to a culmination a growing sense of the wonder of Jesus. And he himself says, truly this man was the Son of God. Now we ought not to uh, see more in this than uh, was meant by him at that time. We may be inclined to think that, well, the centurion here suddenly realized that Jesus is the uh, second person of the Trinity, that he is the eternal Son, co-equal with the Father and with the Spirit, the creator of all things. No, we're not to assume that uh, the centurion suddenly uh, gained uh, insight and uh, a grasp of the, the deity of this this man as God manifested in the flesh, the Son of God, the way we understand Jesus and know him to be the Son of God. Luke actually adds something important in this connection too. In in his account, we read there in verse 47, So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly, This was a righteous man. Now, this might be one of those places where your unbelieving, cynical professors at seminary or at uh, university are going to try to undermine uh, the inspiration of Scripture, and this will be included among the many so-called contradictions in the Bible. And they'll say, see, Luke says one thing, Mark says something else. The Bible's full of such contradiction. This one's obvious, right? No, not quite, actually. Neither one of them said the centurion only said this or that. We know that he said both, perhaps together. Truly, this was a righteous man. Truly, this was the Son of God. It's not unthinkable. In fact, the record of Scripture made clear that this man said both of those things. And like many of the so-called objections to the inspiration of uh, scripture, sometimes it just takes some careful comparison with other passages and some reverent thought and some common sense reasoning. And it shows that these so-called contradictions are not contradictions at all. They're just cheap tools that unbelief hauls out of its armory to try to undermine the authority of God's word. Here we might let our thoughts go beyond what was grasped by this centurion in these statements. This uh, rough soldier was discovering something of the wonder of our Savior. But we know that there is a profound meaning to the, the details of what he said. Yes, Jesus is a man. He's a true man. He spilled real human blood. He died like a man. His spirit was separated from his body. He felt all the anguish of this physical suffering. He's also a righteous man with a righteousness 
that uh, we know far better than this centurion. It's not simply that he was just innocent of the charges or that he was a kind of commendable character. No, he is the Holy One of God. He is righteous with a righteousness that's perfect and exact, who never deviated in the least from any of God's commandments, but kept his law perfectly. And he is the Son of God. And that means he is true God as well as true man. And it means that he is exactly the kind of mediator that we need. Think of the Lord's Day, Lord's Day 5. What kind of mediator do we need? One that is true and righteous man, and at the same time, the true God. Because God will not punish another creature for man's sin. It must be a man. And he must be a righteous man, a perfect man. Otherwise, he'd have to suffer for his own sins. And he must be God so that he might bear the wrath of God against our sin and deliver us from it. So unknowingly, this confession of the centurion zeroes in on the wonder of Christ's person that is foundational to an understanding of the wonder of what he accomplished in his dying. Tradition has it that the centurion became a follower of the way that he became a Christian. What is certain is that he glorified God with this testimony, we're told, with his reverent fear and his amazing words were given insight into the wonder of the one who died. And then finally, the wonder of Jesus shines out at what happened when he died. Here we go to verse 38 inserted there between verse 37 and 39, then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When you think about it, it almost sounds as if this is kind of an interruption of the narrative. Up to this point, the whole account here of Mark's gospel is just telling us what happened. What happened there as observable to the crowd around the cross. And then all of a sudden, it's like we're taken out of the scene. And then in the next verse, we're back there. There's this insertion. And it tells us something that no one at the scene could possibly know or or yet hear about or see with their own eyes. It takes us back to Jerusalem. It takes us into the temple at the hour where these priests would be carrying out their services in the temple. And it describes a rather violent-sounding action to us. This massive, heavy, embroidered curtain separating the holy place from the holy of holies. Showing, as the book of Hebrews says, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. In fact, only the high priest, only once a year, and only with blood, could dare to venture beyond that curtain and to sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat, and to venture to do so at any other time and in any other way by any other person meant death. And now this uh, curtain is torn from top to bottom as though by divine hands that took it and shredded it like that. You see, when Jesus died, the way opened to heaven was made clear because the Holy of Holies was just a, a, a of earthly, in comparison, even using the best possible material on earth, 
covering everything with gold, with beautiful colors, and images there that God had appointed to represent the cherubim in his presence, it's rather crass and compared to the glory of the reality that it represented. The presence of God in heaven. And when Jesus died, the way into heaven was made clear. And we know that in him we have access to God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so what Jesus finished, when he said it is finished, was the way of redemption through his blood. As he opened up heaven with his words of assurance to this uh, repentant thief, but we are assured by the one who died, and the way he died, and what happened when he died, that every repentant, believing sinner will go to heaven. In fact, they may draw near now with boldness and confidence to the throne of grace as those who are accepted in the beloved, as those who are reconciled to God through the blood of his Son. He shall lay his hand on its head. Those are words that uh, I've read, I've heard you all have many, many times, but in reading through the book of Leviticus this last time, it struck me that these words are repeated again and again. He shall lay his hand on his head. And it's the description of the action of one who brings a sacrifice to the temple. All these various different kinds of sacrifices, so many of them have this in common. He shall lay his hand upon his head. Then he shall kill the goat, sheep, whatever it may be. Why? Well, that's a, that's a, a picture. That's a, a visible sign. It is acting out a kind of identification with the victim such that guilt is transferred from the sinner to the substitute who then bears away that guilt by his death. And we know that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. It was simply an emblem. It was simply to point us to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But it does so in a wonderful way for our use yet today as New Testament believers in Jesus. We can't literally lay our hands upon the thorn-crowned, bloody brow of the Savior. You know that the, the Bible, even our confessions, speak of faith in figurative ways to communicate something of its simplicity and beauty. Faith is the it's the the mouth of the soul by which we simply receive. We eat and drink of Jesus Christ by faith, receiving him and all his merits to ourselves, appropriating him with a with an assurance that being united to this Savior, we are of his flesh and of his bones, and God looks upon us in his Son, and he nourishes and feeds us spiritually to life eternal. Or faith is the eye of the soul, like those uh, Israelites bitten with this poisonous serpent in the wilderness. And their only remedy was to look at this brass serpent that had been lifted up. Simply to look at it. And so believing in the Lord Jesus is looking unto Jesus. Look unto me all the ends of the earth and be saved. In your sin, in your guilt, in your need, you can perform nothing to gain acceptance with God. There's only one way. You look to Him by faith. You look away from yourself. You look away from everyone and anything else. 
and you fix the eyes of your soul upon the Lord Jesus. It's faith. Couldn't we also say that faith is the hand of the soul? He shall put his hand on his head. Oh, not literally, not physically. We can't place our literal hands upon the head of Jesus. But in terms of what is symbolized and what is signified by such an action, we come to this Savior who lives and reigns. We come to this Lord of glory who gave himself for us. And the activity of our souls is such that, Lord, we come in our guilt, in our shame, in our sin, in our inability to provide atonement for ourselves, and we lay our hands upon your blessed head in the assurance that you, you are the sacrifice that takes away sin. And believing in Jesus is to so, is so to come to him and to identify our guilty selves with his saving grace as to receive that atonement and be confident that heaven is open to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the wonder, the wonder of Jesus shines out in his death, how he died, the one who died, and what happened when he died to assure us of his saving love and mercy to us sinners for whom he died. Amen.